on the record on news talk Yes, you are very welcome to On The Record. Kieran Cudahy with you until one o'clock today. 53106 is the text number if you want to get us in, if you want to get us on text, that'll cost you 30 cents, should I say. If you want to get me on Twitter, it's at Kieran Cudahy with me in studio. Shona Murray, Mick Clifford and Pete Lunn. Uh, looking the, picking their way through today's uh, Sunday papers, but let me just run through the, the stories making the front pages. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday leads with lockdown in Knock for the Pope. Travellers are being prevented from pre- parking in Knock Main Street in the run-up to the Pope's visit next month uh, the Sunday Business Post leads with blackmail no compromise as Ryanair dicks in ahead of unprecedented strike Ireland prepares for no deal as Britain's Brexit plan far from ideal as well on the front page that story by Hugh O'Connell plenty of Brexit coverage inside all of the papers today the Sunday Times leads with children to get easier path for changing gender the state should let children change their gender without going to court and those under 16 should be allowed to register a change if they have parental consent and uh, May tells Brussels now get serious. Uh, that's on the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, the Sunday Independent, meanwhile, leads with two weeks rain or water shut off. Expert warns crisis imminent. Business businesses face restrictions. They also have a story in the front page. Molly Martins to make one hundred forty seven thousand from sale of murder house. Uh, most of that cash, they say, will be wiped out though by her legal costs. Uh, before we get into any of the stories uh, making today's front pages, I want to start. And you would have heard it in the news headlines there about the rescue effort that's uh, happening in Thailand. Wayne Hayes, the senior correspondent with Al Jazeera English in Bangkok joins me now on the line. Uh, Wayne, what exactly is happening there at the moment? Well, Karen, the rescue operation is in fact underway. Uh, that was announced by the governor of Chiang Rai province, who's really been at the forefront of this operation from day one. He's been the man who has been making pretty much all the announcements and have been in charge of the search operation, which has now become a, a rescue mission. He announced that it was underway, that the conditions inside the cave had improved to an extent where they felt that it was relatively safe enough to be able to send uh, some Navy divers back in there with the specific mission of beginning this operation. So uh, that has been underway for quite some hours now. We believe that 18 uh, divers have gone in there with that mission to start bringing them out. It's going to be a very slow process. Uh, if all goes to plan, they say that the first of the boys should emerge from the cave in around four hours from now. But that is very changeable. Uh, it depends completely on the conditions. And they're saying, look, we may have to pause this operation to suspend it if we are facing difficulties along the way. So it's going to be a very long and complex operation and, of course, a very dangerous one, Kieran. Is there any reason that, that it started now? Because, you know, as recently as last night, it still seemed to be up for debate whether they might be uh, facilitated staying in the caves for as long as three or four months, whether they could be drilled down from above, whether the water might be able to be drained out. Yes, well, up until about 24, 48 hours ago, there were really three options. One was bringing them out uh, the way that they went into the cave, so that is the walking, diving, swimming uh, option. The other was drilling through uh, the roof of the cave, which would, again, take a very long time. We're talking about drilling through about uh, 1.2 kilometres worth of rock. And the third option was to leave them in there uh, while these heavy rains uh, went through the area, which, again, could last uh, maybe months, and then they would be able to restart the operation of draining the water out, out of that 
uh, cave system to a level that would enable them to basically walk out of the cave. But something changed, uh, and that was that they knew the weather was going to deteriorate again. We've had a good period of fine weather, which has enabled the water level in that cave to drop uh, quite significantly. It hasn't all gone, of course. There are still areas they're going to have to dive through, but it has dropped. So that gave them a window. They thought, well, if we don't go now, uh, things are going to get worse, and we may have to wait uh, several more weeks, possibly months, before we get this opportunity again. And the other complicating factor was that they discovered that the oxygen levels were uh, declining quite significantly in that part of the cave where the boys and their football coach had been waiting. So I think they were really backed into a corner here. In a perfect world, I don't think they would be doing this right now, but they knew uh, that things may get a whole lot worse in the coming days and weeks if they didn't take this opportunity. So if all goes well, and look, as you said, look, this is a dangerous operation, so that's possibly a big if. When might the first of the boys emerge from the cave? How many hours from now? Well, they're saying about 9 uh, o'clock in the evening, Sunday evening local time, so that is in around four hours. That's a possibility. They're saying the whole operation to get all 13 people out of that cave, it may take two to four days. That's if everything goes according to plan. Again, they're not ruling out having to stop this operation midway, uh, which could, you know, if they get through the worst of it, they may take it very slowly from there and enable them to just take their time to get out. We have to remember, these guys have been in this cave for two weeks now. They are weak. Some of them uh, have some minor health issues. So it's a very dangerous, delicate operation. All right. Look, on that note, Wayne Hay, who's the senior correspondent with Al Jazeera English in Bangkok, as Wayne said, about three o'clock this afternoon, Irish time, all going well. The first of the boys should emerge from the cave, but uh, that is all going well. Very dangerous operation. And as soon as there is any news on that or any developments uh, right throughout the day, we'll bring them to you here on News Talk. If you're just tuning in, uh, Pete Lone, behavioural economist with the ESRI, uh, Mick Clifford of the Irish Examiner, Shona Murray of the Irish Independent are with me in studio. I mentioned the coverage, Brexit coverage on the front pages and inside all of the papers, Michael Gove, one of the hard Brexiteers in Theresa May's cabinet that had been stared down at Chequers on Friday, apparently, uh, was speaking to Andrew Marr this morning on the BBC. Here's some of what he had to say uh, first about the new line of collective cabinet responsibility. One of the great strengths that the Prime Minister has is that she allowed us, during the course of a day, to share views, to share analyses um, and to look at this proposal in detail. But at the end of it, collective responsibility reigns. And I think for uh, uh, the, the Cabinet, all of us, our responsibility is to work together in order to ensure that we can get the best possible deal for Britain. And of course, it's absolutely critical as well that that deal respects, as the Prime Minister has been crystal clear, the referendum mandate to end free movement, to get us out of the ECJ's direct jurisdiction right. and to take back control of our waters and policy in the areas that matter to our economy. One final question. You were co-convener of Vote Leave. At any stage, were you aware of working jointly with a campaign, Believe, who got £600,000 of public money quite late in the campaign? No. Um, do you believe that you have broken electoral law? No. If the Electoral Commission concluded that you have broken electoral law, how will you act? That's a hypothetical question. But one of the key things about the... Not uh, very. Well, one of the key, it is actually, one of the key things about the Electoral Commission report, which the BBC, I know, managed to, uh, to get a readout of earlier this week, is that I haven't read it. You haven't read it, Andrew. Let's yeah. wait for it to be published. And I know that uh, Vote Leave are going to uh, challenge that in the courts. The critical thing here is that both of us have to respect the legal process, because that's one of the things about Britain. Our rule of law, our common law system, which will be enhanced as we leave the European Union, is one of the glories of our constitution. 
Yeah, Michael Gove there speaking to Andrew Marr this morning. No mention uh, in the interview about the border in Ireland, whether it's going to be hard or soft. Uh, plenty of coverage of that in all of the papers, though. Uh, Pete, th- this is like back in December when we had an agreement on Friday, the famous backstop agreement, and by Sunday morning, David Davies went on Andrew Marr, the same show, and said, well, it's not really an agreement. It was more kind of just an understanding, a casual chat amongst friends, if you will. Uh, and similar spinning going on uh, this morning. But... Uh, I suppose on the note of collective cabinet responsibility, that at least should be welcomed. Probably. Or is it the least we should expect? I mean, yeah, the degree to which it's a fig leaf and it'll all break apart again when we get to the nitty gritty, I think is the real question here. I mean, in a way, they've got to do something. I mean, it's been so shambolic. There had to be some kind of show of unity. 12 hours at Chequers is a very good way to go about that politically. So, you know, I think one can suggest that Theresa May scored something of a victory there. But of course, the thing's going to start to unravel because if you yet again say you've solved the impossible and people start looking at the solution, you'll discover that the same issues are there. I mean, one of the things I can't get over is the semantics of all of this. I mean, what is the difference between a common rule book, continued harmonisation, cooperation arrangements, joint institutional framework, combined customs territory and mobility framework, and a single market and a customs union? Right, Because all of the devil here is in the detail. It's what's the difference between those things. And the real danger here is all we're actually going to end up with, and the Brexiteers, of course, hate this, is some additional layer of bureaucracy that's just enforcing European rules through different institutions. And it's quite likely that that is what it'll look like to start with if they go for a soft Brexit, and the Brexiteers won't accept that. So there's just more fights down the road over a different set of semantics. Uh, Shona, you've spent a lot of time in Brussels uh, with policy wonks as well. Maybe you could go through each of those that Pete uh, <laughs> described and, and explain each one to us and how it's different from the previous. And it isn't, but I think that if I was a Brexiteer, I would say that this is Brino, Brexit in name only. And so even if they say, uh, if, as a cabinet, could sort of decide, well, this is a fig leaf that, that we could, uh, you know, uh, maybe support in some ways. What's the point in any of it? it? It does actually ensure that the UK is a vassal state when it comes to goods and will be. And it's interesting, what Michael Gove there, he talked about the, Europe, the uh, European Court of Justice. The European Court of Justice in black and white will apply for, for goods. So it will supersede British law. And... Um, and plus, it'll be the the UK will be in pretty much the single market for goods. Um, that probably won't be accepted by Brussels anyway, because it is it, by the very definition of cherry picking, which is something that Theresa May was told. Actually, was interesting in Brussels at the last summit, which was uh, a flop, and even though it was supposed to, be, it was billed as one of the most significant summits for Brexit. Um, the, the the Taoiseach had just had a bilateral meeting with Theresa May on the Thursday. What was worrying about that was that the Irish government requested it, and so you know, and she said, "Oh, we have this um, white paper coming up next week," and they're like, "Well, do you want to maybe meet and talk about it?" Oh, okay, so they had an info. <laughs> yeah, maybe. If I have time, you know, even though if they had this white paper, they'd be saying, look, we'll give you an outline of it because uh, we're going to release it next week. So that was the worry- first worrying part. And it was a verbal, incomplete discussion. And the Taoiseach said on the record, I mean, if you read between the lines of what he was saying on the record, he was uh, he was he seemed a bit disturbed again but he said like we I told her like basically not to bother if she's going to come with something uh, to the table which is cherry picking uh, you know which is basically the single market for goods only because literally that's exactly what cherry picking is and so this is pretty much what's happening in the plan so I don't see um, Brussels accepting it but the, the thing is that Theresa May did go on a charm offensive during the week she went to meet Angela Merkel she's been on the phone to you know her people were on the phone to the Irish Sherpas and one of the requests from the British government specifically was to Brussels and other um, heads of state and um, was please don't shoot this down please don't kill this on arrival because the most significant thing that we have this week is an agreement at Chequers an agreement in Cabinet and there, there isn't a Tory revolt uh, yet and so that 
at least they have decided that there's something they can work with and that at least the EU can maybe say, look, this is cherry picking, but we are glad that you have a common position for the moment. And um, you understand that uh, regulatory alignment is something that needs to, you know, is sacrosanct for um, for the UK staying, you know, the UK, the border, etc. And, and a good trade deal. But um, yeah, there's a long way to go yet with this. Yeah, the, Michel Barnier speaking just late last week, but uh, before Friday, before the Chequers summit at the IEA in Brussels, Mick, uh, talked about the four freedoms and how indivisible the four freedoms were. And then the Brits on Friday decided they were going to try and divide up the four freedoms. Um, so in all likelihood, it will be rejected. Should we see this, though, as part of a pattern that some have said that Theresa May really the whole time has been kind of slowly trying to reverse the government back backwards into a Norway model without calling it a Norway model. And this is this is just another step as opposed to this being kind of their final suggestion. This is just another incremental step towards that. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's a starting point because up until now, nobody had anything to go on whatsoever. But I mean, the interesting thing is Look, the Brexit vote is there. It's there and that's what people decided, irrespective of what anybody thinks of it. But the vast majority of those people that decided it, are they anyway hung up on whether this is, whether whether what is retained is a single customs union? I don't think so at all. What you're talking about is the hijacking of the whole thing by a wing of the Tory party that want this particular vision that sounds like something um, nationalistic, a reversion to Britannia in, in, in some form without any economic implications because for most of them the economic implications are not going to affect them directly. They'll affect the millions of people within Britain who'll be worse off as a result of it. And that's at the heart of the lunacy of everything that's unfolding at the moment, I think. So we're all in agreement with Boris Johnson. Is it? It's a oh, like you third. just wanted to. Do, you just wanted to say this and go go for it. And you but might as well do Alan Chatter's tweet while you're at it. Well, Alan Chatter was just uh, <laughs> asking Boris Johnson to confirm whether the third was hard or soft. Yeah. Anyway, I see, I see. By the way, um, apologies to people having their cornflakes out there. I see that um, the uh, Ian Duncan Smith and the Times is reporting that there's at least ten MPs about to submit a letter to Theresa May, and there there may be a, a vote of no confidence against her. I mean, the majority of British Parliament actually don't want Brexit either. So she does have support for a, a soft Brexit. But again, um, it's just it's definitely it, it's definitely not Brexit. Um, and then the old the whole fallacy of Britain then going to do trade deals with the United States with chlorinated chicken, go to do their deals with Duterte in the Philippines, you know, and import uh, substandard goods. Um, and what way does that return Britain to the British Empire mm. of, of old. And not only that, like one of the things that they, well, that Gove had said before was that, you know, they're the former members of the Commonwealth and the current members of the Commonwealth are queuing up to do trade deals with them. One of them, India, huge emerging market, as we know. What was top of the list? Freedom of movement for um, Indians, for Indian people to come to the UK, which is fair enough, as you would do if you're Prime Minister of India. Say, well, obviously we want, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, in- interchange. And, well, how can they um, support freedom of movement for the, amount, the number of Indians that would want to go to the UK and then at the same time not want Europeans in, in their country? It doesn't make any but sense. The, but that's at the heart of it too. Is like, would you, like, as you said, Shona, there is that feeling out there that a soft Brexit. A lot of people feel that isn't Brexit as was envisaged. The problem is nobody knows what the Brexit as yeah. envisaged was when people voted for it. 
and basically it's left up to um, having your cake and eat it for whomever. Including Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, because, yeah. because ultimately it's an incoherent vision and I yeah. think anybody sensible who's really looked at it knows that and knows what it's driven by is a combination of ideology and a misunderstanding of British history that was coined by Victorian historians. Absolutely. And if you try and govern a country based on those principles, you're going to get a mess and that's exactly what this is. And it's also yeah. at a time when the, you know, the, the, I suppose the global community needs that sort of multilateral system, multilateral trade support of the institutions like the World, World Trade Organization when Donald Trump is, you know, engaging in a trade war. I'm sure that's, uh, surely they can see that this is the remaining a mem- a member of a 28, uh, you know, member block, the richest um, internal market in the world. <laughs> yeah. Why would you leave that at this time and then try to engage in a trade and agreement with Donald Trump at a time when he's being incredibly protectionist? It does, none of it, none of it makes sense. Yeah, well, look, Brexit is an issue that... The, the Brexit, sorry, the other thing, as we say, is like, you know, whatever about this white paper agreement on trade, the um, time is ticking away for the October deadline for the withdrawal agreement, which is really important for businesses. We saw Airbus and other companies coming out saying we need this stability and security and the big uh, issue there the huge obstacle remains the Irish backstop um, it's almost impossible for them to come together with their legal interpretation which satisfies what the backstop is supposed to do and you know doesn't look like it's annexing Northern Ireland or you know uh, you know doing something against the constitutional order of the UK and I just see that actually being a much bigger issue and we've only got a few weeks to go Brussels is going to start closing down in August and that I think is the big problem still all right look speaking of bigger issues Pete is it coming home <laughs> uh I suspect he'll be as new, to be honest. That's no. French for it's coming home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, I doubt it. I mean, I'm greatly enjoying this. I'm greatly enjoying a bunch of things. I've been watching my Irish friends squirm on how they feel about it being probably the most enjoyable aspect of it. I mean, I'm more a rugby man than a football man. I'm watching it, obviously, and I hope England do well. I think they're a more likeable kind of bunch of mostly working-class northern lads than England teams in the past have been, which has only added to the degree to which my Irish friends are squirming about it. <laughs> uh, th- I should read that the front pages of all the Sunday papers in the UK are dominated by this story as opposed to Brexit. Happy and glorious, keep calm and harry on. Semi-gods, mamma mia, it's coming home. England gets a semi. That's my favourite. Yes, <laughs> onwards. We've done it. England in the semis. And David Padil, uh, yes, I dare to believe football is coming home. Make it is a very confusing time for the Irish nation, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, I, I think in fairness, as Pete says, this particular England team, and particularly the kind of ethos that Gareth Southgate has instilled in it, um, is is one that is not uh, that sort of rampant flag waving or anything. There is, as you know, there are values there. I think that you could definitely relate to. And the other thing is, look, no more than Ireland has a schizophrenic relationship with British soccer anyway. Mm. I mean, we obsess on the premier and the premiership. And then when it comes to the English national team or yeah, this, that and the other. But my ideal would be to see England get all the way to the final. And then lose. And then lose. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, would you like to see England win, win the World Cup? I, I, I'm torn. I'd be straight up. I'm torn. <laughs> this is exactly the sort of squirming I was talking about there. It's great fun. The, 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 the England is represented by Gary Lineker, yes. Because, I, you know what I mean, I, the, the, that is the most natural thing in, in, in terms of the, the right type of flag with. The other type of stuff, the stuff when you hear the, the, and, uh, the, the sort of... Uh, 
oh, they revert to Dunkirk and yeah. uh, the spirit <laughs> of this and that. And oh, my God, give us a break. We'd never hear the end of it I because we're, we're, we're because we have so much British media uh, coming into the country here like that, that, that. That's what gives me great pause. I mean, you can totally understand. I, I fully agree that they should be on the front page of all the Sunday newspapers. It is such a it's such a delight for yeah. Britain, for England, sorry, to get this to this point when the last couple of years have been incredibly traumatic for the country. Yeah. It's a public nervous breakdown. And but what it is, it is funny that you hear so many people um, pretending they're so mature and they've evolved in terms of their relationship with the UK. And we're, we're much more, you know, uh, you know, sophisticated country. I'd like to see England doing well. And then like, oh, my God, not really. I really didn't. I will, that. I will say one thing. <laughs> it's, I, it's, I, I lived in Scotland for a while after, soon after I left college. And after a while there, I said to myself, Oh my God! I thought we didn't like the English. This crowd, or they, they, they have serious issues. <laughs> yeah, the, when, when Germany was was uh, uh, left the the World Cup, the, the front pages were, were just filled with Schadenfreude. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it was incredible. The, I remember being on a, a camping holiday as a kid in France, and uh, the we'll call it the home nations played the continentals, and it was mainly England families playing German families and we won we were with the English families and uh, the dads all celebrated by getting in the formation of a bomber and doing the dam busters music to the Germans and it's things Jeez. like that that just makes me think okay. makes me worry about how a World Cup victory would be I've celebrated I've clearly got to move away from that line right so um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that's quite funny I have a Danish friend who's a, who's a colleague who got in touch this week to point out that uh, while in Ireland obviously there might be a few people quietly sticking a Swedish shirt in the closet the Danes of course are all sticking the English shirt in yeah. the closet because it's exactly the same for exactly. them. The thoughts of the Swedes going all the way oh, is terrifying yeah. to them yeah. too. And, you know, funnily enough, the New Zealanders have the same relationship with Australia. Canada has Canada, it with America. Yeah. You know, seeing your big neighbour doing Absolutely. well is an uncomfortable position to be in. It is a kind of a positive nationalism, <laughs> though, isn't it, compared to the, the populism that yeah, you're kind of is, grappling yeah. with most of the time. Is, you know the way we all, uh, we, they go on about 1966? Is, is is Eng does England, because I'm not a person who knows anything about soccer sport, is England as bad, or like comparably speaking, do all nations go on? like that about about winning the World Cup before or is it just the English keeper oh, I, I, I genuinely think you've got to put 1966 in the context of the Second World War they beat Germany in the final mm -hmm. and the people who were in England at that time had come out of that war um, and this was a really important yeah. cultural yeah. moment in British history given what they'd gone through only 20 years previously so now of course it looks like awful tin pot nationalism when they did that terrible thing like sticking the kind of military hats on Gaza on the back page of the tabloids and all that horrible mm. stuff but the reason 66 is there is actually a kind of genuine cultural And we do the World Cup 90 thing quite well as well, yeah. don't we? And we only got to a quarter final. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're we're really qualifying <laughs> for World we Cup 90. We only won one game and yeah. it was on penalties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, uh, on that note, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back uh, in just a few moments' time talking about Leo Vracker, why we shouldn't be talking about his socks anymore. On the record. On News Talk. Yes, this is News Talks on the record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Pete Lunn, Mick Clifford, Shona Murth Murray, should I say, sit with me in studio. Apologies, Shona. Okay. Uh, Sharon Murphy, I think <laughs> Ivan Yates called you one day. <laughs> That's not as bad. Uh, plenty of coverage uh, in the papers of uh, Leo Varadkar. Uh, the Business Post, page two, Varadkar blamed lower quality news on young, hungry, badly paid journalists as Hugh O'Connell. The Business Post as well. A human rights group accuses Taoiseach of normalising mm. urban policies. Uh, the Sunday Independent, Leo's fatal flaw pretending to be something he's not, says Brendan O'Connor. And the Sunday Times, Justine McCarthy writing that Leo is not feeling the love. Shona, what was your take on what was said during the week, actually? Yeah, I was in New York and 
it was a mess. It was a, it was a, re- a bit of a mess because actually it had been quite a, a successful week in terms of the Irish bid for the UN Security Council. But um, I thought it was just such a stupid thing to say to 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 say anything about Trump to simp- to word the word sympathize to normalize to give him credit even in a, in a I suppose in a jokey way. It was just it was a bit it was that was the problem. I think he's entitled to I suppose make a, the odd comment about journalists if he, if he so wishes. Um I think maybe it was a little bit excessive, the coverage, perhaps, as well. Because uh, mm. we also do know that Leo Varadkar is kind of an awkward, uh, socially awkward person at times. So I think that the context was that you could actually understand him saying something like that. He, we've seen it before when he met Donald Trump in the White House, that you know that it was a, just a silly gaffe. And um, the audience, there was the wrong audience. It was young Irish, um, you know, you know, Hipsters, whatever, uh, not hipsters, sorry, tech, you know, t- people in the tech, people in the hipsters. media. Hipsters, it's okay. Yeah. And, um, and they were they were quite disgusted. But I understand that because, you know, Donald Trump is offensive against the press is actually um, not just vitriolic, but it's actually dangerous uh, for, for, I suppose, for the, like, in terms of the, the some journalist safety, public safety. I've been to a lot of those rallies, by the way, and I've seen the way journalists are treated and the abuse he gives them. So it is actually endangering them. And also just for the dem- for Democrats society so it's just it was the wrong person to give sympathy to um yeah. What about the argument that some on the left would make that this is the real Leo Varadkar? Yeah. That the mask slips a little bit and you know yeah, the we, sympathy with Orban. Well, do we, do we, are we saying that uh, Leo Varadkar isn't right wing? I, I never I, I never thought that he wasn't. You know I don't think he's actually trying to come across he maybe come across as a you know he's quite liberal now he's changed his views on abortion he's obviously a gay man but that doesn't make him left wing or centre left or not right wing I think that's who he is. No, but, right I, about no but, but I suppose like maybe in a fiscal sense people would have always said that but no, maybe, I think he's, I think he's maybe a, uh, socially there was a sense that he was more progressive he had I think he is progressive I think he's, lo- he's quite really logical he's uh, as a, I, th- I do think he's quite logical in lots of ways but I do think he is a, a, a white right wing leader and you're right the Orban stuff kind of proves that point because the EPP um, is the political party in which Fine Gael is a member in the European Parliament and one part of its one of its membership is Angela Merkel um, one of its Victor Orban the uh, Prime Minister of Hungary and as we know uh, Victor Orban has been engaged in de-democratizing Hungary for years and um, he's he's just introduced new legislation which makes it illegal to help migrants and refugees as we know Hungary is a landing spot in some ways for uh, for refugees he's said that he he won't take any refugees that aren't uh, Christian so he engages in xenophobic attacks um, one of the sort of national policy he has is that Fidesz, his party, no principles can be employed in any schools unless Fidesz actually uh, sanctions them. So you have this and, and then you have a lot of people like, um, you know, fired from their jobs for being critical of him. It's a really serious situation in Hungary. And Fine Gael has a responsibility to, over the past few years, have spoken to Orban. So these are against European policies, but yeah, they, they haven't they done haven't, it. They, they haven't I, defended they, him. They have. Um, they have. And actually, I, I remember when uh, Enda Kenny was Taoiseach, uh, when Orban started this about five years ago, Ireland had the, pro- the presidency of the EU. It's 2013. And I asked it, Ed, Ed, Enda Kenny about it because there was huge uproar. And he was he, he basically was quite indignant at the, the idea that he would speak to his colleague about these um, policies that he was um, introducing which were clearly against European values so the EPP has a lot to answer for and Fine Gael has a lot to answer for I would say that in the in the European Parliament people like Brian Hayes who's a Fine Gael MEP and some of his um, you know uh, party party colleagues have been quite critical of Orban but on a on a uh, national level the teacher hasn't been and I also just add that part of that is 
that uh, the Irish state needs as much support as possible for Brexit. And countries like Hungary, the new uh, bloc of countries, the Eastern European countries, the Central European countries, they are they're not closely closely conscious in any way about what the problem is with the Irish border. So he so the Irish government has a job to do to explain, look, this is our issue, and we need your full support and solidarity. And maybe with that, the quid pro quo is. I won't, uh, I won't burden you with crit- criticising your undemocratic policies. I won't call you xenophobic. Th- yeah. To be fair, whether he's right wing or not is irrelevant. I mean, yeah. th- th- there's a left wing element that are as anti media mm. as any right wing element emerges from the likes so, of yeah. Trump. Yeah, even yeah. more so. So you know, whether he is right wing in that regard, I don't think. I certainly don't think that he's so right wing that he'd be Trump Trumpian no. to put it that way mm. in re- or, or Arvin in, in, in regards to his relationship to the media I think he's just prone to gaffes yeah. and I think any association of Trump's attitudes to the media like that was a major gaffe now there's a couple of other issues there's Leo's own relationship with the media the guy has got a relatively easy ride he is highly uh, media savvy he has been particularly before he became Taoiseach he was a great man for courting the media and two other issues then look we're precious in the media Journalists are precious to any kind of... Uh, I'm not precious. You're absolutely... There was a, there was a fair bit of cross-bearing <laughs> the, during yeah, the weekend. Journalists <laughs> were heavily involved in it. Let's, yeah, let's but, be but, clear. But there, is, but there is one other I got issue. A and that from is, that. There is one other issue, and that is... so There's huge sensitivity there at the moment for this very simple reason, that the whole idea of a professional media is under threat throughout the world largely because yeah. of no more than for example in a cultural sphere the whole idea of uh, making mo- making a living out of uh, music for instance is under threat and that is there and that is a huge thing and that has huge implications for democracy so when you put the whole thing into the mix maybe things went a bit overboard but the, the big thing I think was his association with Trump and anything Trump has to say in the That media. was solely the problem almost I mean yeah. He, yeah. he's entitled to criticise the press and say they, they engage in um, you know uh, just yarns that are, you know, inconsequential and without but he, substance. He, 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 like, he promotes that a lot of the time. Like, he was the one at a press conference holding up a pair of socks and he went for a run with Justin Trudeau and made sure their official photographers were there and had his Leo cupcakes when he launched his campaign. And I, I was struck on Friday after all of this that he does these weekly video messages. People get them in their mm. inbox or you see them on Twitter. And his one last Friday was, uh, you know, the, the day of the checkers and everything happening was a year of bloopers is what he released. Uh, you know, his... his it's <laughs> like when, the week that's when, when, he tried, when he tried to do takes and he made yeah. mistakes so like you know there's a sense he encourages frivolity think, yeah and we can't have it both ways I mean one of the reasons we might like Leo is because we think he's a little bit more straight talking and a little bit more open in many ways than other politicians but if you're going to have a politician who's going to cut through stuff and say things the other politicians and the identikit politicians won't they will be gaff prone they will sometimes get it wrong and say things they shouldn't and we'll all scream at them and that's kind of I think what's happened here to some extent it is important I mean I spent over 10 years in journalism and then I've gone into research and been on the other side of the microphone and it's fascinating watching the way it works there is great variability in the quality of Irish journalism great variability some of it's very good some of it is shoddy and poor Right? And I think it's absolutely right that we should be open to legitimate criticism. I could use the word we because I used to be a journalist. We're talking about the media. The media should be open to legitimate criticism. I mean, the problem is, of course, we get very leery when politicians start criticising the media because, you know, as we know in the case of Trump, he's trying to rearrange truth and avoid criticism. And that's what he's about. And what he's doing is quite totalitarian and authoritarian in flavour. And we don't like it. And we're right not to like it. So it's a gaffe to associate yourself with that. Sure it is. Right. But there is legitimate criticism there. And I thought one of the things that was interesting about the interview that Varad gave to the PA, 
in support of that piece of PhD research. That's yeah, come, which is that's in covering out, the business post which, today. Yeah, yeah, which has come out today. One of the things that's interesting about that is he raised the difficulty of the political system dealing with individual cases that are brought up by the media when there are things like health scandals and so on or trouble in the yeah. health an individual tear-jerky case comes up and it's impossible to do. That is actually a legitimate criticism. It's a really yeah. important area because we know, in fact, we know from my own area in behavioural science that people relate much more to individual stories than they do to, to, to statistics, mm. which is why the media need examples, why you need personal examples to exemplify stories. But it makes it very difficult politically to deal with the issues. That's a very important legitimate concern that got raised there, but it's rather been overshadowed by I what was said about with that. One thing about it, though, is, is, is it all down to the media or is it a question to a large extent that opposition politicians and the media feed off each other in instances like that? And, like, to a certain extent, the coverage of the survival check scandal, which was an absolute scandal in one regard, but a lot of the detail got missed and a lot of impressions went out there that were not. Another example, um, Frances Fitzgerald, when she had to resign last December, that was something I believed in which the media and the polit- opposition politicians fed off each other and you got something that was blown completely up out of proportion. But it is something that is absolutely there and the 24-hour news cycle contributes to that as well. But as well, do politicians feed off it or do they drive it or whatever? I think that's an element to it as well. You, you do see, and, and the, what, what's the example that stuck out for me was the scoliosis waiting lists, which had been covered in a lot of ways over the last few years, the huge waiting lists for surgery times in Crumlin. And uh, I covered them myself. And then Primetime did a special on it. And when Primetime did a special on it, Simon Harris was on RTE the following morning committing huge well, amount yeah, of extra resources because there was these human interest interviews. And they were, they were genuine. I, like I know some an interest element is, is is genuine, I think, and you know, needing that example. But when that gets completely, when people start taking it up and they start heading off in different directions, and it gets completely blown out of proportion, I think that is a mod- that is a phenomenon of media these days, definitely. And that is in the twenty four hour news cycle is the element is the problem there, and also every uh, and as I think uh, Leo Varadkar actually made that point is that um, journalists there are um, under huge pressure to uh, develop a story in any way possible to, to ensure that, you know, their obviously newspaper gets bought or that, you know, they get coverage in maybe Morning Ireland or in or News Talk Breakfast. And sometimes the the advance in this in the in the piece isn't relevant or actually brings people down the wrong path. Similarly, with the cervical cancer stuff oh. as well, like part of that I, I, I thought was uh, really uh, left out or absent was the fact that actually the cervical cancer uh, thing was set, uh, the um, the guarantee was that it would be 70% of cases, you know, would be successful. Mm. And like, so therefore we were actually at international best standard pretty much. So that was kind of lost in, 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 in a lot of it. So there is a lot of pressure on journalists to, to develop stories. There's a lot of competition. And you're right, there's also the proximity of journalists with politicians when you're in, in, in Leinster House. But I think that's also um, something that all, all journalists and politicians, it's a feature of their relationships, you know, worldwide. All right, look, on that note, we're time to take a quick break. Pete, Mick and Shona are staying with me. Back in a moment. On the record. On News Talk. This is News Talks on the record. Kieran Cuddihy with you until one o'clock. That was the voice of Shona Murray. You heard uh, chatting to Mick Clifford, who is still with me in the studio, along with Pete Lunn. And we're looking through the stories making today's papers and the weather and water, of course, is coverage in the papers. It's covered in the papers. Uh, it's on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Two weeks rain or water shut off. Uh, it's from Neve Horn and Maeve Sheehan. Uh, the page six of the Independent as well. Prolonged drought could put winter reserves at risk. And the Sunday Business Post, Post Plus section, Stephen Kinsler is writing about the shape of water. It's an interesting piece, Pete, uh, Maeve Sheehan's, 
And there's a little bit in that, and, and immediately I thought of yourself, the fact that you were coming in today, where she, she talks about, um, she references Irish Water and uh, their line that they're not going after people who just offend the, the one time, that the evidence they have from other jurisdictions is that people respond better when they... You know, they have the hose pipe out and a complaint is made. If someone calls around and positively engages with them in ways to conserve water, as opposed to slapping a fine on them, they find that actually reduces. This is behavioural economic stuff, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of behavioural economics in water usage, though. I mean, that that would be one argument that one could make. It's true. Uh, I think probably, I mean, I had a quick look at the, some of the research on this, on water conservation. Now, yeah, there are behavioural measures that you can use, and there are some good published studies that uh, give some tips on how to do it. Certainly, the obvious stuff is true. I mean, if people are wasting bad you need to make it in some way costly for them but not just financially costly reputationally costly but we should be worrying less about householders and more about businesses here who are the majority of the water users and if there are businesses who are using water inefficiently it's important that we tackle that and deal with it and that they have their reputations on the line as well as they have some money on the line but the most important thing actually is that water is a common resource Uh, There is a piece of standard economics called the tragedy of the commons, which tells you that when something is a common resource, people overuse it Uh, because for their own selfish needs, why wouldn't they? Because one more extra person using it is fine. But if we all do that, we all deplete the water. And wherever behavioral uh, interventions appear to have worked quite well internationally is where you get a genuine element of collective spirit to try and tackle the problem. Now, interestingly... One of the places this was done very successfully was Bogota. Colombia had a terrible problem in its capital city uh, with water. And what they did, they went after it, whereby they started giving people stickers that actually had the name of the city reservoir on it, saying, I'm supporting the city reservoir. They started reporting the level in the reservoir on a daily basis so that everybody got a kind of collective view of how much are we running out of water. So Mm. there was a kind of collective identity that was generated. They also had a little bit of fun with it. They had pictures of the mayor having a shower with his wife circulated. (laughs) 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 But the crucial thing here is to get some sense of a common problem and common identity so that people feel they're genuinely contributing to something and that others are as well. Because going back to the behavioural economics of it, what we know is if you think other people are cheating, you become more likely to cheat yourself, right? You've got to feel that other people are pulling their weight too. So that kind of collective identity to get them to do it, yes, it can make a difference to people's behaviour. And I I think one aspect that would strike me, Pete, is is the whole idea of the level of reservoir and that, because if you have that shoved in people's face every day, that kind of thing would strike me as being something that would feed through in, 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 in that regard, I don't know, I would have thought, you know what I mean? Yeah, if you want to generate common purpose to solve a problem, making it clear to absolutely everybody that the problem is seriously serious and everyone having the same information to talk about yeah. so they know what is it we are up against. I mean, that was the logic of what they did in Bogota and it worked quite well. Do you think, though, that people that, you know... Do you think that Neil Ring is going to get in the shower with his wife and... <laughs> Is Neil, is Neil Ring the... Lord Mayor of Dublin. Oh, no, yeah, the, the Sinn Féin guy. No, 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 he's no, independent. No. Oh, independent. Oh, yeah, of course, well... I don't know. Dublin centric here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but do you think that um, we're allergic to that discussion now because of the trauma of the water charges debate? Look, I mean, there's no question that there are legacy issues there. Of course, there are, and I'm mean, sure Irish Water would admit that too. I mean, I think what happened to water in this country was an absolute tragedy because there was an opportunity to get people to engage with the way they used water in a much more modern and sensible way, and you know, we flunked it. I mean, okay, it was a, badly. Yeah, we did, but I mean, it was all happening at a time of absolute financial crisis, so everyone saw it as a money grab, and to some extent, unfortunately, it, it was. probably was a money grab. You know, so we flunked it, and we've now got to recover that ground and try and get people to sensibly understand so this is be- an extremely difficult resource well, to manage and we all have a role in managing it. What would be the right way of going about it? Obviously we, we know that uh, we have a, uh, a terrible water system so how do you approach it again? Is this the right opportunity, or time to do it? 
Uh, I genuinely don't know, but it's certainly an opportunity, isn't it, to change oh, the way we think about water. I mean, if we, we if we have to pull together and get through a drought, it'll certainly change the way we think about it. That, that could have some good consequences. I think it has to be because the way we deal with things in this country is once a crisis hits, mm. that's the only time anything gets done. And <laughs> even in terms of the water charges, look, let's be honest, there should have been water charges here 20 years ago, but only when there's a financial crisis, they bring it at the worst time. And then the issue becomes one, not about whether you should charge for water, but about, about the wider inequality. Mm in how you address the financial this was the whole this this is the same discussion had though around the economic crash now is the time to completely reshape the yeah. entire economy and we, didn't. Be, and we didn't we muddled through to get to the other side but it, became, it became so visceral as well because it was about uh, people going in and putting a, in water meters in people's homes you had yeah. these human chains in uh, uh, like yeah. outside the states in Balbriggan the, the thing about the moment is I mean as Pete said it is a resource and if, if this last couple of weeks has not brought so some much kind of collective <laughs> sort of consciousness of, of, of the problems uh, to do with it like I mean it's, it's P- nothing with uh, Peter I heard you speaking during the week about the, the your latest uh, your latest work about getting smaller groups is this am I getting it right <laughs> the, the, the idea that uh, the best way to kind of introduce policies or one of the best ways is to trial run them with smaller groups that uh, that it irons out kind of a lot of the kinks and it tells you how they're going to work and I just wonder is this uh an example of what maybe they should have done retrospectively with Irish Water would have been possible? Yeah, so myself and Deirdre Robertson published a paper this week all about there being some areas of public policy where you can experimentally pre-test the policy to see whether it works yeah. before imposing all the That's costs on businesses and all the costs on, yes. on public service and so on. And we highlighted a bunch of areas where you can do that and some areas where we have started to do that and we've started to do that kind of research. So yes, of course. I mean, if you go right back to when we were first imagining that we wanted to put water meters in and that we want to change the way water was paid for and structured, had we set about it in that more kind of scientific way, I, my hunch we would have done a lot better. My own view at the time, actually, was that we ought to have tr- worked hard on the design of the meters. The meters were kind of designed by engineers, not by behavioural scientists. And if there'd been a collaboration between the two, we could have done it differently. How would you have done it differently? So imagine this, right? Just a little thought experiment. Supposing you had a water meter that you could actually see, and mm. it worked a bit like your mobile phone battery, in that you could see it starting to deplete. And supposing you had a free allowance of water that was considered a reasonable amount of water for a household of your size to use, and you could watch it going down, and you knew... Once it went past it and you'd run out of sausages on your, like just on your mobile phone battery, mm. you'd run out of sausages on your meter. Imagine then you know you're going to have to start paying for it if you go over your allowance. Okay. Now, I don't yeah. know whether that system would have worked or not. I certainly know you can run some experiments to see whether it might. But the key point I'm trying to make is you can take a much more scientific and behavioral approach to the way people interact with the resource and their own behavior. And if you do that, you're likely to have more success. Would you have people then, if they weren't using their limit of water, then just like, you know, filling up baths for no reason just to get their. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's free. <laughs> We have a name for that. Ironically, it's called the sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> or maybe you could just get a gold star or get, I don't know, get some money back, whatever, if you don't pay, if you don't use your right. limit. Right, but the point you're making is a good one. Suddenly we're starting to have the right conversation. You're starting to talk about what's a fair system, what's mm. a system that people respond to and interact with in a way that doesn't irritate them, but actually they engage with it in a reasonable way because this is an important resource. So yeah, we do want to be more scientific about that. I want to slightly contradict something that was said in here a minute ago, though. I genuinely think 
think it's true that since the crisis, things have changed, actually. I mean, there's a younger group of public servants who have more respect for evidence than used to be the case. There really is. And, I mean, the change is slow, and the change might not be as big as we might have wanted from a crisis, but we didn't waste it. Things okay. have changed. When you say the that, when you think, what, what young public representatives are you talking about evidence? Are you talking about the Paul Murphy? or, or? I didn't say representatives. <laughs> I said service. 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 In what areas would you be talking about? I think in multiple areas. I mean, it varies. I mean, we work across a lot of different policy areas, and I genuinely think it's true that there is a greater respect for evidence-based policy in the Irish Civil and Public Service than used to be the case when I started doing this kind of work. And when I was working as a journalist back in the noughties. It's slow, it's, pr- it's progressive, but it's there. Was the Citizens' Assembly then a, a version of what you were talking about? You know, that kind of a trial running something. That's in a, in very interesting, actually. So that's one particular type of behavioural intervention yeah. that people have tried. And it's been tried in various places throughout the world where you have these kind of deliberative forums. And they can be really quite influential. And we're looking at possibly doing some work in that area in the future as well. So, yeah, these are kind of ways of getting people to engage in a much more scientifically driven and rational mm. way to try and solve problems. One of the things I like about it is that as soon as you admit doubt... As soon as you say, look, the experiment could go either way or the form could conclude either way, it becomes incumbent upon the politicians to admit of their own doubt and say, actually, I don't definitely know the answer here. It could be this. It could be that. And if you can encourage a better culture like that, and I've just used the word better, if you can encourage a culture that admits that maybe you don't know the answer Mm. and that doing something to find out a better answer, then I think we're making progress. That that did actually happen with the uh, Rocks Committee on uh, the Eighth Amendment because you had politicians, Jonathan Mm. O'Brien, for example, and Sinn Féin, um, Ned O'Keefe, uh, who went into the assembly with a specific prejudice when it came to abortion. Yeah, he knocked and Billy Hedgar Kelleher. Knocked and Billy Ke- uh, yeah, and, and they listened to the evidence from experts. Uh, not people who are coming in with a position about changing the Eighth Amendment, but doctors, obstetricians saying, look, this is why it, it, it imposes this sort of threat uh, to us, etc., etc. And then they changed their mind saying, well, the evidence just says that this is actually doctors working under the shadow of this legislation that doesn't actually prevent abortions and they change their minds. All right. well, the big thing is voters. When can you get voters to vote based on evidence well, rather than promises? Assembly, at, least, at least the Citizens' <laughs> Assembly brought that in where you had a hundred yeah, 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 people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, l- lest anyone take Mick's uh, Barb, seriously, that uh, I'm too Dublin centric. <laughs> Peter Chaclier is the mayor of Kenny. If he wants to, if he, if he wants to pose Kenny naked central. in the shower and tweet about it <laughs> to try and save water down the southeast, he's more than welcome to do it. Uh, look, we're fast running out of time, but I did want to touch on one other story, and it's the race for the Oris, uh, whether there's going to be a race or not. Um, I know Elaine Byrne is writing in the Business Post today about the fact that we're going to have essentially a Michael D goes unopposed would have had one presidential election in 25 years which seems incredible Justine McCarthy in the Times is writing about the Catholic support for Joan Freeman and Stephen O'Brien in the Times as well Mary's Mary Lou's plans to spoil the coronation Make uh, the main reason I want a presidential election is because they're great they're just scorched earth they're character assassinations <laughs> they were the, certainly the last <laughs> one was certainly a form of, of, of uh, wild sport alright whether you would have that in this instance I don't know because I most people would see Michael Lee's issue in but there is a good point being made and that is a political point Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil have effectively opted out should Sinn Féin decide to go on if money wasn't that big a problem with them uh, based Basically, they could increase their profile hugely. And the other one element is, depending on a candidate, there is no such thing as a dead cert in uh, in an election. So it'll be interesting to see whether they decide to uh, to go down that route. I wouldn't be as... If they don't, and if you have, for example, Gerard Ger- Crockwell perhaps being the only one, if he can get a nomination, it'll be a very strange 
kind of election more than anything else I'd say you know Shona but also Kevin Sharkey isn't he um, or well would he, would he get the nomination I would he get in the ballot paper I think that's a question mark over that uh, Joan Freeman certainly is gathering some support mm. uh, it seems in the papers today as I mentioned Justine McCarthy uh, writing about her support to run for presidency Shona I, I think this is well, this is one of those issues that uh, the chattering classes, I think, care more about than people on the street. Well, because I'm I not sure are people that bothered if there's like as no, in Elaine that's Burns. The, no, they, they 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 aren't because people are very satisfied with the job that Michael D is doing. He, he gauges on the you know from a global perspective perfectly well. I've been I've travelled with them several times. He is a, an excellent representative of, uh, of for Ireland, and then I think he has heart and soul um, when he come when he talks about. Uh, the the direction of the Irish government and how he speaks to citizens in 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 the country. So I think that people are very satisfied from with him and quite proud. And also he has a a strong legacy um, of being a reformer, a feminist, uh, somebody who's a you know pursued like sort of liberal policies that people were crying out for you know tw- ten or twenty years ago. So I I think people are just generally quite satisfied with Michael D. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It is, it's a chattering classes issue. Uh, Pete, uh, finally, I suppose a presidential election, though, does look at issues in a mind of a broader, more abstract sense, as well as the character assassinations than you maybe get in a general election. So, like, is there value in terms of public engagement with kind of democracy and a kind of a sense of national identity and where the country's going that you get from yeah. a presidential election, maybe that you don't get from voting for, you know, one of your five local TDs? Well, having come from my monarchy, I have to confess I'm a little envious. Uh, n- nice to live here now in many ways. I mean, I really like the way people engage with the with the presidency here. I think it's a very healthy statement of national identity. And I think uh, the idea of having an individual who represents you, but not in the political fray is a really important idea. I mean, you, you might be right that it's a chattering classes phenomenon at the moment. If a choice got put in front of people, I think it would probably cease to be so. Now, obviously, it got a bit ugly last time and passions ran quite high. Um, and you know, great, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah scorched earth. I think is a I perfect mean, way to if I was still if, if I was still working as a journalist like you, Kieran, I would probably welcome it too. But as a citizen, I'd probably rather it wasn't quite that ugly. But I mean, yeah, statements of identity are important, and I think people would engage. All right. On that note, Pete Lund, behavioural economist with the ESRI, Mick Clifford from the Irish Examiner, Shona Murray from the Irish Independent. Thank you all very much for coming in this Sunday morning. Stay with us. Back in a moment. On the record. On, the record. on news talk.